We're in Luke 18 today, and we won't get quite as far as I originally thought. This first part of Luke 18 has two parables on prayer, so we'll do it this week and next. Prayer, as we've talked about before, is a special emphasis in Luke. It'd be nice someday to sit down with Luke and talk to him about how he, how he wrote his gospel and what some of the things were that really struck him, some of his the interests. He seems to really be interested in, in prayer, more than that, even how Jesus prayed. I did a quick computer search, and I found that the word prayer, praying, that kind of term, was used 19 times in Luke, 12 in Mark, or sorry, 19 in Matthew, 12 in Mark, and 26 in Luke, almost more than the other uh, two Gospels combined. The word prayer, strangely, is never used in John. There is prayer in John, but the actual word prayer is not. Also, the term prayer is used uh, 29 times in Acts. So if you look at Luke and Acts, both Luke's uh, writings, we have over 50 times prayer is talked about. And as I mentioned, Luke is especially interested in Jesus' prayer life. In Luke 3.21, only Luke says that Jesus was praying after his baptism when the Spirit came down. Luke 5.16 says Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Other Gospels talk about when Jesus chose his disciples, but only Luke in Luke 6 mentions that there was a night of prayer before that. And Luke 9.18, the disciples asked, or Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? And only Luke mentions that Jesus was praying just before he asked that question. And the synoptic gospels all talk about the transfiguration. Jesus went up to the mount with Peter, James, and John. Only Luke mentions that Jesus went up to the mount to pray. And only Luke mentions that Jesus was praying as he was transfigured. And then in Luke 11.1, it's Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer story. But it says, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. That's a story that's only in Luke. And only Luke mentions the particular intensity of Jesus' prayer in the garden. The other Gospels mention his praying in the garden before his crucifixion, but Luke 12, or 22, 44 says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So that particular intensity, that, that sweat that was like blood flowing down from his 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 face was uh, only in the Gospel of Luke. So it's no surprise that Luke would have three parables from Jesus on prayer that aren't recorded in the other Gospels. In fact, the only recorded parables we have from Jesus on prayer are in the Gospel of Luke. There are two parables here in Luke 18, and then there's one parable in Luke 11. Uh, let's look there real quick. Luke 11. I just quoted verse 1 when the, Jesus was praying and the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus here gives something like the Lord's Prayer that we see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But then Jesus, immediately after that, says, verse 5, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And here's the lesson. So I say to you, ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So we see echoes of Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, in verses 2 to 4. We also see echoes of Matthew 7 in verses 9 and 10 here. But only Luke gives us parable of the uh, the importunate friend, if we can call him that. So Luke has three parables on prayer. The other Gospels have none at all. Now let's look at our text today. We'll get down to verse 8, Lord willing. Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. And here we have the parable of the importunate widow, or the persistent widow, or the unrighteous judge. It's given different names. Luke 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times... They ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Back to verse 1, we see the reason for the first parable. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now, it's interesting if you look at how the parables are presented. Sometimes parables are just spoken, and we never get an explanation from anybody about it. Sometimes they're spoken, and Jesus will later give an explanation to his disciples. In this case, Luke gives us a reason for the parables up front. And Matthew Henry said this, interestingly. He said, this parable has its key hanging at the door. You go into the parable, the key is there to open it. We don't have to wait to find out what it actually means. And the lesson is that they at all times to to pray and not to lose heart. And who is them? It's the disciples. Not necessarily just the twelve, but disciples of Christ. We can look back to verse 22. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Before it's the Pharisees, now it's the disciples. So we still have the disciples in mind as Jesus speaks in Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus says here, they ought at all times to pray and not to lose heart. That is, to grow weary. When you've had enough, you're ready to give up. You've, you've run the race and you just have no more energy to continue. You've prayed long enough and God hasn't answered the way you wanted to. And so you figure, I should just stop now. Galatians 6, 9 uses the same term. Paul says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So in Galatians 6, 9, we keep doing good, we keep doing good, we keep doing good, even if we don't see any immediate fruit. We don't lose heart in doing good, for we will reap if we do not grow weary in God's time. In the same way, we keep praying and praying and praying. Don't lose heart. When you're tempted to lose heart, keep praying, because God will bring about justice, as we'll see later, in his good time. And I really love the honesty here. Luke knows we are prone to stop praying and we are prone to lose heart. And so this is a very honest assessment of our own hearts, and I'm sure Luke struggled himself at times with his own prayer life. Now, we want to be careful, though, as we interpret this passage, 
asking, what kind of prayer is Jesus talking about? Is this a general uh, instruction to keep praying and praying and praying, or is this something specific Jesus has in mind here? Remember, an important part of biblical study is to look at the context, and you might have a a lesson you want to glean from a particular passage, but you can't always do that. So be careful. Look at the context to see what this is being taught. There are many passages, of course, that talk about the importance of prayer of all kinds, but in this context, Jesus is referring to a particular kind of prayer, as we'll see shortly. So this is this verse 1 of chapter 18 is a good verse to remember if you're going to give up of any kind of prayer. But it's a special kind of prayer Jesus has in mind here. So let's go now into the setting of the parable. We've had the reason up front, keep praying, don't lose heart. But what's the setting? Verse 2, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now this is a judge right away. Jesus describes this man's character in a few words as the opposite of what a judge should be. You might remember Back before the people came into Canaan, they were going to settle the promised land, and God said, Deuteronomy 16, 18, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers and all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So righteous judgment is the, the goal of the judge. Every town would have uh, a judge or, or more judges, depending on how big the, the town was, who would be able to adjudicate matters related to the law. And listen to Second Chronicles 19, 5 to 7. Many years after they settled the, the promised land, King Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in our righteousness or partiality, or the taking of a bribe. He says here very clearly, the judges are to judge righteously on the basis of God's law, and it says you are to let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. And yet this man, this judge in Luke 18, did not fear God and did not respect man. A judge should be concerned with the God under whom he judges and the people for whom he judges. But instead, this judge broke the first and second commandments Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't care about God, didn't care about his neighbor. And in fact, he freely admits it. Verse 4, he says, I do not fear God nor respect man. He wasn't deceived in his heart. He knew what he thought about God and thought about men. Didn't care. He's not concerned with true righteousness, just with whatever seems best to him. He was a law to himself. Maybe he loved to get bribes or he just went on his own whim. But he didn't care about God, didn't care about God's law, didn't care about God's people. And Jesus Jesus even adds to the description of this man in verse 6 and calls him an unrighteous judge. Of all men, judges should be the, the ones concerned with righteousness. Well, so we have this unrighteous judge. We come next to the widow's persistent prayer. The widow's persistent prayer, not not a kind of prayer to God, but a prayer or petition to a man. Verse 3 says, There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. So the other character in this story is a widow. Now, if you were trying to design a parable yourself, and you wanted to find someone who was outwardly religious but was a hypocrite, who would you choose as your character? Pharisee. If you wanted to choose somebody who in society's eyes was was a wicked 
uh, compromiser. Uh, who might you choose as a, a character? Tax collector. We'll see that a little later. If you wanted to choose somebody who was completely, utterly helpless, who would you choose as your character? A widow. Right? They were the ones who were, who were most hopeless in that society. Women didn't have a lot of opportunities to make money back then, so without a husband or sons to provide for them, they could easily become destitute. So Jesus picks a natural person to gain sympathy for us as we see how this unrighteous judge works. And there are many verses in the Old Testament about how God cares for widows and how his people should also. Listen to Exodus 22, verses 22 to 24. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. So if you oppress widows and orphans, I will make your wife and your children widows and orphans. God takes it seriously. You don't want God to be angry with you, but this judge didn't care. He did not fear God. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So God loves the the outcasts or those who are considered to be the lowest, poorest members of society. On the other hand, Deuteronomy 27.19 says, Cursed is he who distorts the justice to an alien, orphan, and widow. Again, this man, this judge, was cursed by God because he didn't care for this widow, but again, he didn't care. One last verse, Psalm 68.5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. So we have God who takes care of widows and orphans, we have this judge who doesn't care about the widow. I mentioned before Luke has a special interest in prayer. He also has a special interest in widows. Maybe his mother was a widow. We don't we're just be speculating, but he seems to especially uh, love telling stories about widows. He mentions widows more than any other Gospels combined. He mentions Anna the prophetess. Remember her back in, the, in Jesus after he was born? Anna the prophetess, she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And in Luke 2, it says, As a widow, she lived to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Only Luke mentions Anna the prophetess. And only Luke records this statement of Luke, or Jesus, rather, in Luke 4. I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the, all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And then one last story about a widow. Again, only Luke records this. Look at Luke 7. Luke 7. This is one of Jesus' great resurrection miracles. Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That's what a, what a beautiful story that is of Jesus' compassion for this dear woman. This widow, on top of the grief of losing her son just now, and 
losing her husband at some point, she had the added burden of financial insecurity. As a widow in those days, who did she rely on to take care of her? Her son. If her son's dead, who takes care of her? He was her only son. She would have nothing. But now that her son is alive, he can help take care of her. And besides the material destitution often suffered by widows, women would generally rely on the men in their lives to take care of legal matters. But this woman, back to Luke 18, had no one else. She had to be her own advocate. No one else was there to take care of her. Like, remember, Boaz helped take care of Ruth, the widow. This woman had nobody like that to help her out. We don't know what she needed, who her opponent was. She mentions in Luke 3, give me protection from my opponent. Jesus will later say in Luke 20 that there are scribes who devour widows' houses. And it may be that a scribe was trying to devour her house or her, her money in some way. But we can assume this woman had a just cause. Because if she did not have a just cause, the judge could have just sent her away on that basis. You don't have a case with me, go away. But she still has a persistent case. She has a righteous case. But the judge is unwilling to answer her prayer. Verses 4 and 5. For a while he was unwilling, that is, the judge was unwilling to help her. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. The widow wore this judge down, just like our children try to do sometimes, don't they? Or maybe we try to do it as children as well, so us parents aren't off the hook. We, all kids do this from time to time, try to just get their parents to give in by constant requests, requests, requests. And this term, she will wear me out, literally uh, means to hit me under the eye. You might remember 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul says, I discipline my body, or I buffet my body, I bruise my body, make it my slave. That's the same word here. I I beat my body, not literally, but I discipline my body. I, I hit myself under the eye, metaphorically, to to uh, discipline my body. And maybe this judge is concerned she'll get so mad she'll slug him. Uh, maybe nowadays she might hit him with her purse. Something like that. She'll get so mad she'll just hit him. Or she'll figuratively keep beating him down until he does what she wants. In any case, whether bodily of bodily fear or just wants to get rid of the annoyance, he's going to do what she wants. And we see in his attitude that he is truly unlike God. Remember those verses before where God says he is the father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows, or that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow. This man, by reluctantly, only after a long time giving in to this widow, is showing how unlike God he truly is. This woman, he should have been most willing to help. He helps only reluctantly and for his own sake. He doesn't help her because she has a just cause. He doesn't help her because she's losing her money or because her opponent is, is a bad guy. She's only helping... He's only helping her because he wants to get rid of her. He's not concerned with justice. He just wants her to stop bothering him. Well, we get to the lesson then in verse 6 down to verse 8. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? 
I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. And here Jesus makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If an unrighteous, uncaring judge will answer this persistent petition, won't God do the same thing for his elect, his chosen people? This judge answered the prayer unwillingly and delayed till he couldn't take it anymore. But God's answer comes gladly and quickly. And now as we get to the end of this section, we see the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about. Verse 7 says, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? So this persistent prayer mentioned in verse 1 is about justice. Just as the widow wanted justice, God's people want justice. Look back at the book of Habakkuk. 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 Towards the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Now this is kind of late in Judah's history, uh, a few hundred years before Christ comes, late in the, the history of the Old Testament. And so there's much sin in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And Habakkuk is a prophet, and he despairs as he sees the wickedness around him. Chapter 1, verse 4, Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. It's twisted. So we see this righteous man seeing unrighteousness all around him. He sees no justice. He sees only violence, wickedness, destruction, strife. The law is not upheld. It's ignored. So he sees around him all the the decay of his society, and he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you will I call for help? And you will not hear. Habakkuk is despairing. He has this this cry. He's longing for justice, just as Jesus mentions in Luke eighteen seven, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? So Habakkuk is praying this kind of prayer. And God answers him. In a surprising way though. Verse 5 says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. We can read further and talk more about Habakkuk. But this is what God is going to do to judge his wicked people. He's going to take another wicked people, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and use them to, to judge to discipline his own people. And Habakkuk has some back and forth with God on this matter. We won't look at it this morning. But just keep in mind, this is the kind of cry that Habakkuk makes to God as he sees the wickedness. He sees uh, injustice. He sees unrighteousness all around him. And he cries out to God for relief and says, How long, O Lord? Now, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6, another case of this crying out to God for justice Revelation 6, verse 9. It says, The Lamb broke the fifth seal, and I saw underneath the altar 
the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony with of which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell in the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So we have here those who were killed in this period of time, these martyrs for Christ's sake. And they say, how long, O Lord, just as Habakkuk did, how long will this happen? How long will it be till you bring about justice? How, how long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? And it's, they're told that they'll wait a little while longer. There's a few more servants of Christ who have to be killed. When that's completed, God will come and will come quickly. We also see in Revelation 19.2, at, at the end, God it says, God has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So in Habakkuk's time, in the time of Christ, the time of the apostles, throughout history of the church, in Revelation, there are times when God's people are under persecution, they're being slain, they're crying out to God for justice. And justice does not always come in the time that they want, but justice will be fulfilled, and God will avenge the blood of his bondservants on those who slay his beloved people. Back to Luke 18. We do seek justice in this life, and thankfully in our country we have many rights recognized in our laws, but we don't always get justice, do we? We may often ask ourselves, when will Jesus come and put all things right? Now, 2,000 years does not seem very quick to us, does it? Jesus has been in heaven for 2,000 years. Why didn't he come uh, 1,900 years ago? Why didn't he come uh, 100 years ago? Why didn't he come yesterday? We don't know. It seems very long to us. But remember what Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, and not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So even as we suffer now on this earth, we can take comfort in the fact that while we suffer, God is bringing together his elect. He's gathering his elect, and he's waiting for all of them to come safely into the fold before he comes back and meets out justice. Now, I found a couple of lists, one from Warren Wearsby and one from Matthew Henry, on the contrast between the widow and us. Here's a few of them. First of all, the woman was a stranger to the judge, while we are the elect, beloved children of the judge. The woman came to an unrighteous judge. We come to a righteous father. The woman could only come at certain times, but we can cry out to our father, as it says here, day and night. The woman came to a court of law. We can come to the throne of grace. The woman had no friend at court to help her. We have an advocate before the Father, who is Jesus Christ. The woman had no help in her petitions. We have the Holy Spirit to help us in our prayers. The woman had no promise of relief. We have the precious promises of God that he will deliver us. And one last thing. The woman's petitions annoyed the judge, but as Proverbs 15.8 says, the prayer of the upright is, remember, the Lord's delight. Does God ever get annoyed with us? Any of you parents ever get 
annoyed when your kids keep asking and asking and asking? You don't have to raise your hands. I know. We did the same thing again to our, our parents. That's part of the human condition. But as much as we speak to God truly in faith, asking for his help, God listens gladly and will answer our prayers according to his perfect plan for our good and for his glory. Well, Jesus has an epilogue here at the end of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And this question connects, I think, to the end of Luke 17. Remember, Jesus is speaking in Luke 17 of his second coming. He's coming back. But when he comes back, will he find faith on the earth? We ourselves may ask this question, what will the state of the world be when Christ returns? Some say the earth will get better and better and better, and Christ is going to return in sort of a a, a glorious kingdom that comes as, as the gospel spreads through all nations. But we think back to the examples earlier in Luke 17 when Jesus talks about Noah, and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know how many people lived in the world in Noah's time. could have been... Millions or billions at the time? How many were saved out of all those people? Just eight. Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know how big those towns were. Presumably fairly large. How many were saved? Four, and only three made it out completely. Four were let out of the city, and only three made it out, as as it says just in Luke 17, Lot's wife turned back, looked back, and was turned into a pillar of salt. And so we have these examples of great judgment with only a few being saved. And so we might ask ourselves, when Christ comes back, will there be millions who follow Christ or only a faithful few? Will, when he comes back, Jesus asks the question, will he find his people still faithful, still praying, still not giving up? Listen to 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and Paul's just getting warmed up. In the next few verses, he lists many other evils to come in the last days. So we can ask ourselves again, how many faithful ones will there be? And will they have the same kind of enduring, persistent faith as this widow did? Will we, as those who, are, if we are alive when Christ comes back, will we be the ones who are praying and praying and praying for God's relief and remaining faithful to Christ? Well, let's look at a few things as we wind up here in application. First of all, obviously, persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. And there are so many exhortations in Scripture to pray about all kinds of things. Ephesians 6.18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The word all there is used at least four times. All prayer, pray at all times with all perseverance and with petition for all the saints. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, simply pray without ceasing. And so we can ask ourselves, how persistent are we in prayer for Christ's return as we suffer for his sake? Do we keep praying and praying and praying day and night? And we ought to. After all, our model prayer includes the words, your kingdom come. 
That's part of the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we don't pray those exact words regularly, but it should be part of our prayer, shouldn't it? That Christ's kingdom would come. It's the very end of the the Bible. It says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we pray that Christ's kingdom would come, um, not just because we want to see Christ, which we do. We're not just looking for the joys of heaven, but we want Christ to come back so that he will set things right and, and deliver justice for his own sake. And so as we, in America, see more hostility to our faith in this country, uh, we're relatively unscathed compared to our brothers and sisters around the world, but we may see more and more darkness come upon us. Is our response to that to be more angry or more fearful, or are we more prayerful and more faithful? And that's a question I ask of myself. And we trust when the time comes, we'll, we'll be faithful, we'll remain prayerful. And maybe we aren't suffering much ourselves, but certainly we can cry out on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are in great distress, who are suffering unimaginable injustices. I'm on an email list, and I get updates from time to time from a, a ministry that looks at uh, Christians who, who are suffering persecution around the world, and I get those emails, and I, I look at them and says, please pray for so-and-so, and sometimes I'll just, to my shame, ignore them. I'll be looking for a new deal on Amazon or whatever it is. I get these things that are of great importance to these, these dear saints in some faraway country who are suffering for their faith, and I can't even be bothered to open up an email and pray for them for, for 10 seconds. And that's, a, a, again, a shame to me. But I think we all need to do better to pray, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters around the world, to ask God to deliver them and to bring about justice for them. So we remain in persistent prayer. We also can find comfort in our election. Find comfort in our election. And I won't talk about election uh, to any extent right now, but it does say here, will not God bring about justice for his elect? This is verse 7. Luke 18, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? God has chosen us. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And he cared enough about us to make us his own before the world began, to send his son to pay the penalty of our sins and to prepare a place in heaven for us. So God has shown his love and care in these great things. And so he will also show his love and care in the smaller things. And he will fulfill all the promises of the coming kingdom, even though it seems like a very long wait for us, and that wait may involve suffering. God is there, and we can say, because I am one who is chosen by God, I'm a gift from the God the Father to his Son, I'm as safe as any creature in the entire universe. And though someone might take my life, may, may cause me great physical pain, they cannot take my soul, because it belongs to God in Christ. So we find comfort in our election. We also must remain faithful. Remain faithful. It's easy to moan and complain and rage and worry about the state of the world. You look at the, the news, you read the paper, look on the internet. Uh, there's lots of stuff to be angry about, to be fearful about, to complain about. And these items are a cause of grief and even righteous anger and a reason for much prayer. But in the end, there's really not much we can do about things around the world or in Washington, D.C. or Olympia. We can, we can do a few things, but there's not a lot we can do ourselves besides pray. We need to just be faithful ourselves. We seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. 
be a faithful light in the world, and we pray for God's kingdom to come, and we trust him with the results. So while we, we might be concerned with stuff all around the world, we can't fix it, but we can be faithful in where God has placed us today. Look at 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we know this passage, most of all, I think, because of the end of this chapter where it says, all scripture is inspired by God. But look at verse 12. And Paul has just talked about persecutions and so forth. But God rescued him in verse 11. And Paul says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so does Paul say then, pick up a sword and go attack those who are bothering you? He says, no, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So your job when you are persecuted, when evil men and impostors proceed from bad to worse, continue in the things you have learned. Be faithful to the scriptures, what God has taught us in his word, just one day after another, step by step, be faithful to Christ. You can't change evil men's hearts. You can't change your behavior. You can pray for them. You can pray for yourself. But all you can do, all you can, the only influence you have is over your own heart, your own soul, your own faithfulness by God's help to step forward and live a life that pleases him. So we persist in prayer. We find comfort in our election. We remain faithful to what we've learned we also need to remain holy. Second Peter 3.14, after Peter has talked about the coming of Christ, the writers of the New Testament never say, because Christ is coming, sit on the roof and watch for him. They say something like this, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things that is the coming of Christ, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So we are to be holy as we look for Christ look to ourselves, make sure that we're faithful in, our, in the teaching and walking in righteousness. One last thing we ought to do, and we could list others, as we wait for the Lord and pray for his deliverance, remain joyful. Hopefully you still can find Habakkuk again quickly. But remember when Habakkuk is crying out to God and says, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will this wickedness around me continue? When will we bring justice and God says, I'm going to bring this wicked people to come discipline my people. It would be easy to, even if we were to remain prayerful and to uh, remain faithful and to remain holy, it would be easy to become cynical, to become uh, uh, pessimistic, to, to be sad even as we wait for Christ. But listen to what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk 3, verse 16. And here, Habakkuk is, is thinking about the judgments he's heard about what God is going to do. I heard, and I, my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Again, he hears these judgments, and he, he can, he's unmanned. He basically is falling to the floor, and he, he can't get up. Decay enters my bones. In my place, I tremble. We might say he's in the fetal position uh, about this this judgment to come, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. He knows the Chaldeans are coming. But, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, 
Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there should be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. That is, he's in a precarious position, but he's sure-footed like one of the mountain goats. He cannot be moved because the Lord is his strength. So while Habakkuk, you might not blame him if he saw this this prophecy of the Chaldeans coming, if he just hunkered down somewhere, digs a bunker, and waits it out in great fear. But he says, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. So while Habakkuk might be discouraged, he might give give in to despair, he might lose heart, to use the words of Luke 18. He does not. He exults in the Lord because he knows the Lord will accomplish his will in his good time for his purposes. And Habakkuk's in our uh, best. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this encouragement. Even though we in the United States do not suffer as much as many others around the world, we do see the world darkening around us. We do see many ominous signs of people rushing headlong into wickedness and trying to knock out the pillars from underneath our society and and rid America of any vestiges of of Christian morality. We know that things may well get darker in the next few years, next few decades, until you come back. And yet we know that you are on your throne. You are our strength. You are the God of our salvation. You give us strength to stand firm against those who would come against us. We pray that you would give us the grace even now to stand firm in maybe a small way as those who seek to persecute us come against us. And for those around the world, our brothers and sisters who suffer so much, who are even under now, a threat of death even now, we pray you'd give them a great strength, great joy, a great light to those who are oppressing them and bring about justice for them. May we be more faithful to, to pray for them, to pray for your kingdom to come. Give us eyes to see the, the future, knowing that you will overcome. May we not become angry or despondent or pessimistic, but to keep entrusting ourselves to you. We pray these things in Christ's name, who has conquered for your sake and for ours. In Jesus' name, amen.